Why does suffering exist? If there is a God, why does he permit it to occur? Why does he not intervene? What is God's purpose with this coronavirus? Hello, this is Matt Davies joining you. I hope you're keeping safe. This week's Bible in the News is a full-length special lecture given from lockdown in the UK on the 19th of April 2020. The talk is entitled Corona, a Christadelphian response, and it deals with the biblical principles of human suffering as well as the message of the coming kingdom and salvation in Christ that we read of in the scriptures as distinct from mainstream Christianity. We hope this talk will provide the genuine seeker of truth some biblical explanations to the current corona outbreak and pray for the time when God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So here we are in, uh, in, in this lockdown that we're all facing. Life is on hold. Um, we've got uh, Britain where we are now. I know we've got people tuning in abroad, um, but Britain at this moment in time is shut down. Um, unprecedented times. 4.5 billion people, around half the world's population, is in lockdown in, uh, in, in isolation. And, you know, we've, we've, we've seen some remarkable things, haven't we? Like, I've, I've been written to by the Prime Minister himself, and I'm sure you have as well if you live in the UK. And, of course, we've, we've heard of the, um, of the illness even striking our President Boris Johnson himself and even people in the royal family. This virus that's affecting society is indeed um, not a respecter of, of, of class or, or, uh, or, kind of, or kind of person, is it? It's, it's affecting everybody. It's a real leveller. That's what this virus is. And so, you know, we are, we are seeing, aren't we, the, the tragedy of the death toll rising, the infections rising, and, uh, and uh, you know, it, it's pretty awful. These are the statistics from today. Absolutely horrific to witness. And not only that, of course, with the economies being paused, um, uh, to, to put it mildly, we have, uh, we have the, the concern a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of economists have that, that really there's this massive recession uh, coming that, um, that is going to kind of send shockwaves around the world and really change things, things up, a crisis like no other. And so people are worried, aren't they? And maybe you are worried um, are about getting ill. And, uh, and possibly dying. It's, as we say, this is a leveller. You know, this could happen to any of us. I could get it and die. You could get it and die. So it's a leveller. We're worried about our families, particularly our elderly members. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about the economy. We've been worried about food supplies. Um, although I think that, at least in, in the UK, has started to, to change. But we don't know the long-term effects on the, on the supply chains. We've been worried about toilet roll, haven't we, quite a bit recently. Now, tonight, it's not my job to talk about any of that stuff, really, because what we want to do is to give a response as a Christadelphian. And uh, we're going to be taking a very biblical approach. If you know anything about the Christadelphians, you'll know that we are very keen on, on elevating the Bible. We believe it's the holy word of God and inspired by him. And so we want to look at it from the perspective of the Bible. And the message of tonight is quite simple that that God is in control and that um, that poses various challenges for us 
and we'll look hopefully at some of those challenges shortly. Before I go into all that though, um, I just wanted to introduce the Christadelphians a little bit more in case you haven't heard of us. We are a community of people from all different walks of life. Um, as we've mentioned, we believe in the authority of the Bible. Um, the word Christadelphian simply means brethren in Christ in Greek. And we're bound together by a common faith in the gospel preached by Christ and his apostles in the first century. You'll find us all over the world. And that is what unites us. We have a common faith and it is quite distinctive and different from what mainstream Christianity preaches. Um, and we'll come on to some of those things, I'm sure, as we go through this evening's talk. What we do do, though, is we share this hope in the resurrection of the dead and a resurrection to eternal life in the future in God's coming kingdom on the earth. And that's what we'll be uh, we'll be touching on later. So I just wanted to mention a little bit about us um, before before diving in. We have no kind of paid clergy. We have no pope or pastor or hierarchy. Um, we are um, little independent groups, independent meetings, we call them ecclesias that meet and uh, share this faith. And so if you were interested in anything we have to say today and you haven't really come across us, um, a lot of Christadelphian ecclesias, communities, are still meeting on Zoom and I know around the world they would love to hear from anybody interested in some of the things that we have to say tonight. So um, on the screen, this is your bible.com forward slash contact is a resource you can go to to find your local Christadelphians. I'm here speaking on behalf of the Lie Christadelphian Ecclesia. And I come from Nottingham, as, uh, as Jared has, has mentioned. So we're here in this crisis. Um, some questions that we might be asking. Why do we suffer? Like as humans, why do we suffer? Why doesn't God intervene in suffering? Why doesn't he intervene in this coronavirus? If there is a God who is supreme and uh, in control, why doesn't, why doesn't he stop it? And we might also be asking the question, well, what is the purpose of the coronavirus? Now, all of these questions that, that we're going to go on to answer and that were in the, the, the advert that we sent out, they presume and assume that there is a God. And so I just want to touch on that briefly because there are some key principles that we need to think about before we go into trying to answer these questions. Now, tonight's talk isn't here to to put forward the evidence that God exists. There are, there's tons of evidence that a God exists. The hallmarks of design in nature, the amazing witness of Bible prophecy we could turn to, a unique amongst religious texts, um, and absolutely amazing how the Bible predicts the future before it could happen, something nobody, no human can do. But even if you don't think God exists, and you're tuning in to just hear what these, uh, these strange Christadelphians have to say, even if you don't think God exists, I want you to consider this fact. On what basis are we looking at these questions? You know, why do we suffer? Why would God allow that? If there is a God, why, doesn't, why does he allow suffering? Why wouldn't this God make everything rosy and nice and, and lovely for us? That's the, that's the, um, that's the line I often hear from, from atheists that I talk to about this. And of course, that's quite a perfectly natural position to take if you're only thinking about it from a human perspective. But you see, if God exists, there's another perspective. There isn't just the human perspective. There is a divine perspective. And so, yes, 
Naturally speaking, as humans, we might want everything to be rosy and comfortable and lovely for us. And we might imagine that if there was a God, we'd sort of imagine him like he was a human and uh, that he would live by humanistic principles. And we might think of him almost like a Father Christmas kind of figure with a long beard giving out benevolent sweets to the world. But the truth is that when we look at the Bible, there is a very different picture of God. Yes, a loving God. Yes, a God of extreme grace and mercy, but also uh, a God of truth and righteousness. And we want to touch on that. We're not going to beat around the bush in today's talk. We, we, we are not going to avoid some of these sticky things. We're going to try and do our very best to outline what the Bible says about God. And what we want to, what I wanted to say to you was to bear in mind that there is this other party in the conversation, not to just think of things in a, in a limited sense from a human perspective, but I'd, I'd like you to try and keep an open mind as we go through what the Bible says to see what the Bible says about these things, to, to almost bring God into the conversation, uh, into our perspectives. And the Bible does indeed hold the answer. So tonight we're going to take the time to, to review those things. Now, a few very, I'm going to throw a load of verses at you now. You're not going to be able to take it all in very quickly, but I just want to give you the, the wealth of evidence that there is in, in the Bible about what the Bible says about God. Okay, so firstly, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, says Psalm 24, 1. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. These verses demonstrate that the Bible teaches that there is a God and he is absolutely sovereign. He is in charge of everything. He created everything. He controls everything. He rules everything. Not one thing, not one atom is out of line with his purpose that he couldn't bring back into his control. Here's some more. Job 23:13. But he is in one mind and who can turn him and what his soul desireth even that he doeth. Another psalm, Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 103, the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou, it says in Daniel 4. In Isaiah, for the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? And finally, in Timothy, in Timothy it says, the blessed and only potentate is God. That means ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who only hath immortality. 1 Timothy 6.15. God is supreme. And the final passage in this little chain to prove and to just really set out the case. I am God, so it says in Isaiah 46, and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. That's prophecy, right? Bible prophecy. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So this is the picture that the Bible presents of God. Supreme sovereign, in control, 
doing whatever he wills. There's no way around that. There is absolutely no way around that. And, um, and the Bible also teaches us that this God, this creator of the heavens and the earth, he is a God of truth. He cannot lie, we read there in Titus 1. So one of his characteristics is that he is full of truth. All his works are truth. And one of the other things that's worthy of, of note, just as we go over some of these principles, is that God has said that he has revealed that truth, his truth, his perspective in the Bible that we, that we have before us. So you can see that, that this Bible is the word of truth, the word of God, not like man's word, we read in 1 Thessalonians 2. The word of truth in Timothy, the word of the truth of the gospel, the good news. There's a message in this word of truth in Colossians. James, the word of truth. And we can go through all of these, the scripture of truth. God's word is truth. So I hope um, you don't mind me throwing a load of passages at you, but it's really important we set some, some sort of key principles to frame this conversation about God and about his truth. We, to summarise, if, 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 uh, we're going to go through a number of these summary slides. So if you get lost at all, hopefully you'll see a few circles on the screen and it'll, um, you'll be able to, to kind of um, realise what we're, what we're driving at if I've not explained it particularly well. But what, what we've just looked at there really from the Bible is that God is supreme. God is the source of truth and the Bible is how we access that truth. So in this conversation that we're talking about around suffering, around coronavirus, around why this is even happening. We have to allow God into the conversation and not just simply look at it like human beings. He is outside of that. He is supreme and we are under his divine authority. So let's sort of now go into our first key question. Why does God allow suffering? Well, there's some interesting things to think about, really. We have a problem as human beings. We're all dying. We're all mortal. In fact, the Bible says that that's the whole point of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save us, like we are in need of saving. That's how, God, that's how God's word, the Bible, presents it. We need to be saved. And so we ask the question, well, save from what exactly? Save from, from what? What's this problem that we need to be saved from? And when we ask the Bible that question, what we find is that it talks to us very much uh, and centres all the way back to the beginning in Genesis around creation. And you, you might know um, the, uh, the narrative well. We read that Adam was created, the first man in the Garden of Eden, he was commanded to not eat the fruit, and if he ate it, there would be a consequence, that, that of death. Dying thou shalt die if you eat this fruit. So we know that um, he, he sinned and he did eat of that fruit. We call this the fall, the fall of mankind, the first sin. And uh, we know what happened. There was this serpent, this creature that could reason and talk to Eve and uh, and uh, just logically walked through and said, well, you, you're not going to die. And uh, Eve listened and, and took that animal reasoning and sinned. 
and so God's law was disobeyed. Now, what was God to do here? Was God to be this benevolent sort of characteristic that we sometimes see in liberal theology of, of just letting it slide, toleration of, of sin? No, because the God of the Bible is a God of righteousness. And so he said, look, if you eat this, there's a consequence you're going to die. And so to uphold that, death came into being. And so mankind died, began to die. And not only that, we read that other things started to happen. The ground was cursed, we read in Genesis 3. So there was, there was changes in nature. So there was a fallen creation, the world. Nature had other things um, happened to it. The, the ground was cursed and in the sweat of man's face he would have to work to eat bread. Um, and finally um, we read that man was expelled from the Garden of Eden and so humanity began. Now Adam didn't die straight away but death set in. He and Eve had children and offspring and so on until we are here today. That's the story of the Bible. But we all have this problem. We have this problem of sin. Now, just to kind of put that in a, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm a visual person, so I like to try and put things in, in as best I can in visuals. So, you know, if you think about it, man and God were together at the, at the beginning. God had created man, but then Adam sinned. And so man now descends into a state of sin and death. And he is rightly associated to death because of the sin of Adam. And we read of this, this kind of nature of mankind. It's kind of become inherent within us, this, this propensity to sin, this rebellious nature that is, that is fused together with our mortality. And so we read, uh, for example, just a few chapters later in Genesis, how that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We read in Jeremiah, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and sick. And Jesus tells us this, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. And so this is our problem that we inherit from Adam. Yes, we inherit um, a fallen nature which is um, related to death and dying, but we also inherit this wickedness that kind of is part of our being. And so as we go through the Bible, we see this is absolutely clear. The Apostle Paul tells us it by inspiration in Romans 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, like in my being, there is no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. He just can't do good. He's got this rebellious instinct within him, even the Apostle Paul. And so he says, It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And uh, we read in James how it works. It says there in James 1 that every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the state of humanity. Now, this is a very different picture, I would suggest to you, to the picture that Western society paints of humanity. We very much live in the, uh, the, the, the days of humanism, which teaches us that humans are inherently good and basically you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt another human being. And whilst there is some 
um, an element of niceness and, and, and an element of, uh, of that which, which appeals. That is not the picture that the Bible paints of humanity. The Bible paints a picture that we have a problem, that we are sick, that we need saving. And that this is connected with sin and connected with mortality and death. It's summed up in Romans chapter 5. Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And we believe there what it's referring to is the fact that Adam and Eve both sinned together. And so this death sentence was passed upon them, all humanity at that time, for all have sinned. And it spread then down through time. We are mortal. We are dying. We are flesh. We require saving. And not only that, you might have, meant, you might have know, uh, noticed when we, we looked at Genesis that there was a fallen world. And, uh, you know, we talked about the ground being cursed. It's interesting that, that pestilences or viruses that we're facing now is part of this. This is part of the decay of the natural world and, and part of the problem that we face. This planet is dangerous to live in for us, isn't it? It's not, it's not easy for us. Pestilences and famines and earthquakes, etc., etc., they all came in. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, we read that, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. And so that's the situation that we're in. We're in a fallen world with, um, with the problems of nature around us. And we are a, a race of people who are also fallen within it, full of sin and death, inflicting pain on others and, and having pain inflicted upon us in this, in this ball, this sphere that's floating around the universe. Now, it's just worthy of note that within that then, we do indeed find that viruses are part and parcel of the world that we live in. You know, we're, we're here in, in, um, in 2020 uh, in this corona pandemic and um, there is always a temptation to be sensationalist. Like this is, you know, the, the, the biggest thing ever. But I just want to point out that diseases have always been part of humans, the human existence. You know, in fact, I didn't put them on the screen, but there's there's evidence of influenzas killing thousands and thousands of people going right back into antiquity and even before Jesus was here. It's part of the fallen state of mankind. This world is a dangerous place to live. And if you if you think about it, I mean, we're very fortunate and very grateful and very blessed to be living on this side of history, aren't we? Because it's only since 1885, I believe, that scientists were able to actually cure diseases. Prior to that, there was nothing anyone could do. And so we look, um, you know, back at uh, even just some of the recent um, deaths uh, and plague, plagues and, and, and um, pestilences and pandemics. You know, the Black Death was horrific. You know, 75 to 200 million people dying, uh, estimated. Reports estimated that 50 to 60 percent of the whole of the population of Europe just died. Absolutely horrific. We've got Spanish flu, Asian flu, swine flu, Ebola. This is part and parcel of the natural world that we live in and the state of humanity being related to sin and death. Now, we just mentioned that 
because it's important to to bear in mind that that human suffering is a thing now it's always tricky to sort of deal with this subject to be honest because it's very hard because we as we say we're, we're human ourselves and you know to try and answer on behalf of God as to why this is is tricky all we can do is try and go back to his word to understand what he has said and one thing I think is amazing is that God does not shy away from the fact that he has a purpose for this evil circumstance that is a consequence of sin he uses it in fact he wills it into being you can't have a sovereign god who who is not in control and so we have to accept as bible believers that all of these terrible things they are under god's supreme um, control so for example when we look through the scriptures we find that um that God declares some of these things. He says in Deuteronomy, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. You know, these are, are statements. These are, we have to re respect and be in awe of God, like God does as he pleases. And, you know, he is in control of life and death. He, he says he makes people dumb and deaf in Exodus. In Samuel, it says that, that, that the Lord killeth and maketh alive and bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. So God raises who he wants. He, he destroys who he wants. This is the way of things. And so when we actually go through our Bibles, we realize that, you know, humanity is condemned uh, to the grave and uh, and you know that is the, the righteousness of God like God said if you eat of that you will die and that's what's happened and and so we find places where where God himself is in control and even uh, permits like the flood for example and creates the flood millions of people died in the flood the exodus the firstborns of Egypt were destroyed God is in control of that when you go through the Bible, you cannot get away from it. Punishments on his people of Israel, diseases in the wilderness, the destruction of the Jewish state in AD 70, all of these things in the Bible, God permitted, controlled and allowed to happen, willed to happen. Even in the New Testament, people think it's an Old Testament thing. It's in the New Testament as well. You know, in your spare time, look up Acts 12:23. An angel is said to have killed Herod for not giving glory to God. It's in the New Testament as well. And so we cannot be liberal. We cannot be humanist. Liberal theology tries to rescue God from being in control of bad things. But by doing so, what we try and do is, is we try to rescue God from, from being bad. We try and redesign him and make him into a humanist sort of style designed God. But then we, if you think about it, we limit the power of God. Because what are we trying to say? That God isn't in control? That God doesn't will this into being that God can't stop this if he wants no 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 the Bible is very clear God is in control and it doesn't shy away from the fact that God uses evil look at this Amos 3 shall there be evil or an evil circumstance in a city and the Lord hath not done it God says in Isaiah 45 I form the light and create darkness I make peace and create evil I the Lord do all these things I will bring evil upon all flesh Jeremiah 45. So God permits and sometimes uses evil circumstances for his purpose. For he is God and he controls everything. And this is not hidden 
in the Bible. It is clear we cannot limit God's sovereignty. Either God exists and is supreme and in control and therefore is over and wills suffering and evil or he is not. And so I, I would submit to you that we have to come to terms with that and we mustn't be humanist in our understanding. We cannot diminish, limit God's power. He is not powerless over these things. Now, I'll just sum that up. Don't worry, it gets positive as we go through. But we have to be clear about this. I think we've got a responsibility when we, when we talk about the Bible to front these things. So what are we even looking at? Well, what we said is that there's various consequences to the fall that the Bible explains to us. Firstly, mankind becomes sinful and mortal and related to death. From the moment we're born, we're dying. And we, uh, we have this nature which then uh, kind of uh, means that we sin and therefore it's right that we die. And there's the other consequence, which is that there's decay, decay and death in the world. And we've made the point that God allows and even wills suffering to take place because of his righteousness. These things are there because of God's declaration to Adam that if he was to sin, he would die. And so we have to, if we, if, we, if we come to God with that, suddenly our human pride is completely squashed when we realise that actually we are rebellious, that actually we aren't um, perfect and we aren't inherently good. We have a problem. And that's what God wants us to recognise, that we need saving, that sin is a problem. And that's the solution that he um, has set out in his word. So when we say, why doesn't, God intervene like God can do anything he wants he's sovereign and he has actually intervened he's set in motion a purpose for the earth in his love and in his mercy now he's sovereign and he can do as he chooses and this is what he's determined he has said in his word the bible that that he is going to fill this earth with his glory and we understand that the purpose of God is to is to fill this earth with a population of people who have been changed and given immortal life. So they don't sin anymore. So they're not related to sin and death and they are made immortal and they are um, perfect examples of his character. We call it God manifestation. They manifest, they show forth God in all their ways how would this come about, you might ask? Well, that's the, that all has to do with the gospel. Now, before we go into that, I just want to sort of share something with you, just to sort of try and summarise what we've been doing, because it's been pretty heavy, I get it, I, I get it's heavy. But what we've, what we've been looking at is that man's state, the Bible calls it in Adam, is, is the natural state he's born into, and so it's related to death. That's why we die. That's why we have diseases. That's why we have sin. But the Bible teaches us that God, in his mercy, has called some of mankind from that destiny. And he calls them using the gospel to a life in Christ. He calls them to be baptized and to connect and to commit to living differently than the ways that man would naturally live. Uh, he he asks us to uh, 
to transform our minds and start to think like he thinks, to have faith in him, to have confidence in him. And the Bible tells us that even though in that, that, that called state we might die, there is a hope of resurrection from the dead when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, which we as Christadelphians believe will happen very soon. And when that resurrection takes place, there's a judgment, and those accepted, we believe, will be given eternal life. So the message of the Bible, actually, is that God has been merciful in that he has opened up a way of escape from the destiny of death. Now, this is what we read. How, how, is, this, how is this to come about? It's all to do with this thing called the gospel, the good news. This is what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And so we have this gospel message. So, and God has basically said, look, here is a message. If you accept this, if you accept this message and you believe it, I am willing to save you. And as a hallmark of your belief, you must be baptized, which means full immersion in water, connecting with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and a life after that of commitment and faith to the things of God. If you do that, the Bible says you will be uh, given eternal life and you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll be able to approach unto God. We'll go into that a little bit in a minute. But just have a quick look, just to establish this fact that the gospel is the key. The gospel of salvation. For I am not ashamed, says Paul by inspiration, of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's so important to understand the gospel correctly. Because it is salvation is predicated on a correct belief in the gospel. And then John 17. This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So we have to have knowledge. We have to have understanding. We have to think about things from God's perspective, not just what we wish, not just through the traditions of men. And, and the Bible talks about this as a calling. And in Corinthians there we read that, that all sorts of people are called, but not many famous people, not many rich, not many nobles, not many mighty people are called to the things of God. Normally, normal people common people are called maybe you are being called right now i've been called we come into contact with the gospel it's god's offer to us of eternal life and it's up to us our free will to accept or not why why is it that god doesn't call all the all the famous celebrity people to this well because god's working with those things that are weak in the world and we read there that the reason for this is that no flesh should glory in his presence he is sovereign he chooses who he wills and he reveals his gospel truth to them. What is the gospel? That's not tonight's talk. You'll no doubt um, if you if you keep um, listening in to talks like this or, uh, or you, you, you go online, you'll be able to find loads of talks on what the Christadelphians preach around the gospel. We believe that we have quite a distinctive understanding, quite a unique understanding. We believe we have what we call the truth, the truth of the gospel, which is very different to mainstream Christianity. Um, but in essence, just looking at the Bible, what is the gospel? What is the things that were preached before someone was baptized? Well, the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. There's these two parts to the gospel that you need to understand before you can be baptized. The things of Jesus Christ, 
Really, we're looking at the forgiveness of sin. We're looking at understanding the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and uh, salvation in him. The kingdom of God, we're looking at the restored kingdom of Israel back again on the earth. And we'll touch on that in, in just a minute. But if you were interested in kind of a short synopsis and a summary, our statement, the Christadelphian statement of faith does it really, really well. Um, so feel free to, to go online and, and download that. It's interesting that the first um, 16 sort of points in the statement of faith deal with um, the name of Jesus Christ. And then from point 18, I don't know if you can see that there on the screen, that the things of the kingdom of God are the facts testified concerning the kingdom of God in the writing of the prophets and apostles and definable in the next 12 paragraphs. So from uh, from point 18 onwards, um, we we define our understanding of the kingdom of God. So check that out and have a look at it in in sort of um, summary of those things. You know, the, the, the gospel, what it does is our faith in it. It's, uh, it, it first requires us to humble ourselves and realize this problem of humanity that I've been talking to you about. And it helps us to um, realize the way that God has reconciled us back to him through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through Jesus. He is the center of the gospel. And when we read the Bible, we realize that the Jesus of the Bible, the real Christ, is very different to the Christ preached by mainstream churches around us. We find in the Bible that Jesus was a man with the same problems as us. He had the same temptations as us. The flesh, mortality, the temptation to sin. Howbeit, the Lord Jesus Christ was the only man never to give in to those temptations and lusts. He was without sin and guile was not found in his mouth. And he died in complete obedience to God as a sacrifice to show how worthless the flesh, how we are born naturally, even without transgression, was because it was related to sin and death. Uh, but because he did no sin, God raised him from the dead and bestowed upon him eternal life. And for his sake, God has said that he is willing for all those that believe that that was all right and correct. He is willing to forgive our sin and also open up a way of salvation through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for Christ's sake for us, willing to raise us from the dead and give us eternal life if we agree and believe that all the principles by which God has revealed and stood for are right, that the flesh is worthless, that its propensities to sin are worthy of destruction, that God is right and righteous in all of this. And if we do that and we commit to those things through baptism, then we can have this reconciliation, this restoring of a relationship back with God as Christ as our representative. And then we have to live lives after the pattern that he has set. So I hope that, I mean, I know I've gone on, I know I've gone on, but it's important that we sort of set that out um, as clearly as we can. Just to kind of give you the diagram. So, oh, hang on, that's, uh, that's not coming up correctly. There you go. So um, we have Adam's sin. We have mankind in a state of sin and death. But then we have Christ's sacrifice and through belief and faith in the rightness of that, we can have reconciliation with God. God is willing to account, uh, account uh, our, our faith and obedience as righteousness. So there we go. There's the, there's the hope of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be all made alive. And that's what we hope as Christadelphians for, for Christ to return, for the kingdom to be restored 
and the giving of eternal life. There's a couple of passages up there. It says in Philippians, he will change our vile bodies. We'll no more be related to sin and death. It says in Peter that we'll have the divine nature. No more this nature related to sin and death. This is the hope of the Bible. And, uh, and we hope that you will find out more about that and, uh, and stimulate your faith in those things. Just to switch on to the kingdom of God, we won't uh, labour this too much, but it's interesting that the kingdom of God existed in the past. We read in the Bible that, for example, the kingdom um, under David um, and Solomon was called the kingdom of God. And there was a literal law, a literal land. Um, God had promised that land to Abraham way back in Genesis. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says that that, that promise in Genesis of the land of Israel to Abraham and his seed and those that are faithful, that is the gospel. And so we find as time goes on that, uh, that, that by the time of King David, about um, 900 BC-ish, that that kingdom um, was, 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 was instituted, albeit not, not perfectly, but it was there. And it's interesting that, that um, the dynasty of David eventually came, went down through time and um, the last um, king of that dynasty, Zedekiah, um, he was wicked and so God sent Ezekiel the prophet to him and Ezekiel says to Zedekiah I will overturn overturn the kingdom and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is and I give it him so the kingdom that existed in the past will be restored and be given to one whose right it is and we believe that's the Lord Jesus Christ and so we read you know in the Christmas story in Luke 1 that Jesus will be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, the throne of the kingdom of God, all over again. It's going to be restored. That's what the Bible teaches on the earth. And after Jesus died and rose again, he spent 40 days with his disciples, you know, and uh, we read of that in Acts 1. And in Acts 1, after 40 days of a Bible class with Jesus, the disciples say to him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel. They expected him to restore it again 2,000 years ago, but he says, no, it's not for you to know the time or the hour. And 2,000 years have passed, and so we're still waiting for the restoration of the kingdom. And in fact, Jesus taught us to pray for that, didn't he? You remember the Lord's Prayer? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. So we're praying for the kingdom to be restored, for the kingdom to come. And that's the other part of the gospel. So, let me just summarise all of that as best I can for you. We can't go into these things more. I just wanted to give you a flavour. God has intervened by offering a way of, of escape from sin and death. He offers this through the gospel and calls us to, be, to, to believe it and be baptised. And the gospel consists of the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So, our final question then. Well, that's all great, but... We're here in lockdown. What is the purpose of this coronavirus? What is the purpose of all this stuff? If God is sovereign, if God is supreme, then he's in control of all this. What, what is he doing in all these things? Now, to answer that honestly, I'm just a man, right? All we've got is the Bible to go on. So I can't give a definitive answer for God. But all I can do is share with you some of the things from the Bible around why the coronavirus might be here. There's two real streams of thought that I want to share with you. The first is that the coronavirus could be here to further God's plan to establish his kingdom. 
You know, in the Bible, we'll look at this in just a second, there's prophecies about the nations. There's prophecies about how God moves in the kingdom of men to bring it around how he determines. And he's set out in his prophecies what the nations will be like just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And he's building and moving and working in those nations. So he's working in a macro scale right at the top there with the nations of the world in the political heavens, so to speak, that we would call it. But he's also working on an individual level. So another reason that the coronavirus might be here is to cause people to reflect and to draw closer to God. And I want to take up these two points with you just uh, by way of conclusion. So the first point is that God is supreme and he is in control. We looked at this verse earlier, but just think about this. The Most High, that's God, rules in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. God is supreme. His angels, his messengers are at work. And uh, if we have faith in the Bible, then we will believe that, that, that God is in control, even on that macro scale. He's going to cause his kingdom to come. Now, we might not always understand or, or see why or how that God is moving in the kingdom of men. You know, we're just here on earth. We might not always understand it. Take, for example, World War II. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, and we read in the Bible that God still is working with the people of Israel, and he has a destiny for them to be the principal nation in the kingdom. It's their, their kingdom that we become connected to. Anyway, he scattered them, didn't he? Uh, if you know your history, in AD 70 with the Romans and they scattered the Jews all over the world. And um, Jews moved for 2,000 years from place to place. There was no place for them in the world. But they remained a distinctive people. Now the Bible had prophesied of their return before Jesus came back to the earth to establish the kingdom. He said that they were going to return. He was going to gather them again to his land. And we can find that this, that's not the subject for tonight. There's loads of talks we could, uh, you, could, you could look at in regards to that. But there was no way for the Jewish people to get back to their land. They weren't prepared to go. In fact, one of, their, uh, one of them, uh, Theodore Herzl, he wanted them to go back and they didn't want to go back. They were comfortable. And uh, this really annoyed Theodore Herzl. He wanted it to happen. But there was no way it was going to happen. This is, uh, you know... Um, the, the reality of things, they were comfortable. But then this happened, didn't it? The Holocaust. And, um, you know, if, if anyone was uh, living, if we were living in the time of World War II and the Holocaust, right, we might be thinking, why is this happening? This dreadful, horrific, terrible affliction of suffering on God's people of Israel. But then it all led to this, didn't it? 1948, the British withdrew control of of Israel and the state of Israel was born and David Ben-Gurion declared that Israel were to be an independent state. Fulfilling, I would suggest to you, Bible prophecy because after that point, after 1948, we see the Jewish people making aliyah, as they call it, returning to their land in fulfilment of the Bible's prophecies that before Jesus would return, the Jews will be back in their land. And we can see now from hindsight that the terrible conflict and suffering that was met out and God was in control of and permitted and willed in uh, the, the horrors of World War II has led to the fulfilment of his word later on.
Now we don't question that. He is God. He is sovereign. And we, but we stand in awe at the fact that his prophecies are indeed being fulfilled. Just, um, just we haven't turned to any Bible reference. So if you have got a Bible before you, I would like you to turn over to the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 38. Let me just show you a couple of very quick things in Ezekiel 38, please. You go over to Ezekiel 38. It's a fascinating prophecy. It's probably one of my favourite prophecies in the whole Bible. Why? Because it teaches us and gives us a snapshot of the nations and the position of the nations before Jesus returns. In verses 1 through um, through through 7, it talks about these nations which will all unite together and come against Israel in a time period called the latter days. You see that there in verse 8. But it gives us a snapshot of what would happen to the people of Israel. So if you look at verse 8, after many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years or the latter days, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Says they're going to come. This army, this united force of the nations, is going to come like a cloud to cover the land. But notice what it says in verse eleven: Thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. This is our time. The Jewish people have been gathered from the nations and they are now in their land. And so the scene is set for these nations. We've put um, where we believe they are. They're, they're obviously called by their ancient names in verses 1 through 7. But when we look back in history and get back as far as we can, we can roughly figure out where they are. Some are quite familiar to us. For example, Libya and Ethiopia in verse 5, we we're familiar with their North African territories. Mentions Persia in verse 5, which only recently Iran has changed its name from Persia to Iran. In fact, the Gulf of Persia still exists. They forgot to change the name of the Gulf of Persia. Other ones are a little bit more sort of hidden. Um, in verse 2, the, the, great, um, the great leader is called Gog, and it says he is the, uh, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, as that verse should be rendered. And we know that the Rosh or the Rus, as it is, is an ancient name for the Russian people. And so we have the Russians leading this confederacy. And in fact, we, we also read of European nations in verse 6, Goma, um, who we believe eventually became the Gauls, so the, and then the French, and Magog, which we believe is Central Europe, Central and um, Eastern Europe. And so what we get here is a picture of all these nations uniting together, coming down against Israel, um, in a great battle and it's at that point we read in the latter days again mentioned in verse 16 that we read that God will be sanctified and that means he will be elevated he will be uh, he will be he will be kind of exhibited in these things and he's going to act we read in verse 18 fury shall come up in his face and he will indeed appear and we believe that this is um, what will happen that the Lord Jesus Christ will be uh, will be here and will actually defend the people of Israel and you can read of that in Zechariah 12 and 14 and Joel 3 and various other places and in verse 23 the end of all of those things is that God will be magnified and at the very end all nations will know of God 
right? The kingdom of God will begin at that point as the Lord Jesus Christ um, saves the people of Israel and establishes his authority in Jerusalem. And then the kingdom spreads, as Daniel 2 talks about, to, to fill the whole earth. Now, that is what we believe is, is going to happen very soon. This nation, these nations, they come, we read, from the north in verse 15. They come down into Israel. So we as Bible students, we're watching Russia, we're watching what's going on in Europe, and we have been saying for a while that we there's something's going to change because we've had NATO and we've had an east and a west. And what we're saying though is no, these these have all got to unite. Russia and Europe has to be together for this to take place. Another group of nations is mentioned in verse 13, um Sheba and Dedan, the Gulf states and Tarshish, which we believe is Britain. Again, we were going to speak on this tonight, but um you know, that's uh, that's not our subject now. But we believe that that's the ancient name of Britain. And they're they're against this great army that comes down. And so you have the, the, the situation of the nations just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Is coronavirus part and parcel of what God is doing as how he's revealed he will work? I don't know. But look at verse 22. This is really interesting. I will plead against him, that's Gog, and the armies of the nations that come against Israel, with pestilence and with blood. And so it's interesting that pestilence is used there. I wonder if coronavirus is going to be a part of it or, 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 or connected to it in some way as God comes to defend his people Israel through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a suggestion Maybe a possible reason for the coronavirus and the world turmoil that we see is to, to eventually see the elevation of Russia dominant so that Europe looks to Russia and the prophecy can be fulfilled. Maybe it's there to show a weakening or, or to, to make the British and the American, the Tarshish and young, young Lion powers weaker and get them focused on trading in the Gulf so that they can resist the Russian-European alliance. Maybe that's part of it we don't know all i can say though my dear friends is that there's a lesson when we look around the world and we see these terrible things happening a lesson from the lord jesus christ and it's actually how god also uses things to work with individuals uses crises to help us reflect upon our own positions jesus says this in luke 13 there were present at that season some that told him of the galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. So Jesus is there and these men walk in and they talk to him about this terrible torture that had gone on with these Galileans in Jesus' day that Pilate had done some terrible things with. And Jesus says, oh, that's interesting. Do you think that these people were any more sinners than anybody else? Because they suffered those things. Do you think that they're any worse than anyone else? And he answers his own question. He says at the end there, I tell you nay, no. He says that they weren't. This is going to happen to all sinners. All of us eventually will do this. But he gives us a hint of what we're supposed to do when we see suffering and pain and death in the world around us. He says, except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish. And so the exhortation from Jesus Christ himself is that when we look around the world and we see all these things, we might not know what's going on really. We try and make sense of it as best we can. But the real lesson of these things is to look at ourselves as an individual. We need to repent 
because all of us are mortal and dying. We have no control over our, over our death. In fact, we have no control of our life. If one thing has been clear by this corona thing, in this lockdown, we're not in control at all, are we? It's just been an illusion all these years, an illusion of control. The Bible tells us that we don't even know what tomorrow will hold. And so we have to have that humility and we have to look within. And the message of Jesus is to repent, to turn away from the fleshly things of, of, of the natural man and to turn towards God and towards his word. It goes on. There's another example. Jesus says, or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were more sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? So again, there was a, a catastrophe that took place. A tower fell down, killed 18 men. Jesus says, were they any worse than anyone else? He says, no. All humanity deserves death. He says, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And so we look at ourselves, don't we, as individuals. You've got your circumstances, I've got mine. Death is a reality. We cannot control it. But we can control how we respond to God's word. And once you accept the truth, that once you accept the gospel, once you're baptized, once you have that relationship with God, the Bible tells us that you have a kind of a peace because you... You have a faith, a hope in something bigger. You've got a purpose. And um, we believe that within that purpose, God uses difficult circumstances, uses our suffering, uses our pain, uses our mortality to remind us that there's a future beyond these things. In fact, the Bible tells us that God corrects those that he loves. There's a passage in Proverbs. It's also mentioned in, in Hebrews. It says we mustn't despise this chastening, this correction. We must embrace it and be joyful about it, which is very hard, right? It seems a bit strange. But when you think that God is trying to change us to get us ready for his kingdom, then there's a purpose behind it. God is in control. And James, it tells us to count it all joy when we fall into these trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And so when we look at ourselves as individuals and we look at the problems around us, we take this on board, don't we? How are we doing? What's our response to these things? Are we trying to, to please God and repent? Because we're all sinners and we're all going to die. And so that's the message of the Bible, to really take this seriously. And if we do, we'll have that, that, that peace. And we'll know, as it says here in Romans, that all things work together for good to them that love God. All things, even coronavirus, in some way, it can work together for good if we take it on board if we change, if we take the time to refocus ourselves, to repent, to think about God's ways. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not just talking to the unbaptized here, the people that haven't accepted the things of the gospel. I'm talking to those who have as well. All of us, we need to look at ourselves, don't we? But particularly, I would suggest, if you've not been baptized, if you haven't embraced the things of God, if you've known the truth, if you've looked into it, if you've studied it and you've said, yeah, that is, that makes sense, but you've never quite embraced it. Well, maybe this is the chance. Maybe this is the last chance to do so before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. This might be the last chance to stop and reflect. Now we have some of us at least a bit of time to do something about what God has revealed in his word, in his love and his mercy and selecting only a few and giving them access to the gospel to accept the offer of eternal life from him and to be born again through baptism. And so maybe this time is for us to rededicate ourselves, to change our ultimate destiny, 
to embrace the things of God. So what's the purpose of coronavirus? Well, as I say, I cannot give you a definitive answer. But I will tell you this, that if we believe God is in control, if we believe God is sovereign, then we have to appreciate that he is in control of this and there will be a purpose behind it. Maybe it's to further his purpose to establish the kingdom as he works in the kingdoms of men and as he raises up nations and puts down nations. And maybe it's on a personal level to those he wishes to call to him, to get them to dedicate themselves and be closer to him. And maybe it's both because he is sovereign and in control of all things. And maybe he's working on a number of different levels. But one thing's for sure, that kingdom will come. That day when the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. And if we commit ourselves to the things of God, we know that we will be raised from the dead and given immortal life. So that even if we catch this virus, even if, we, even if our bodies deteriorate and die, if we've accepted God's truth, we have that faith that we will be in that kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity and we know the wonderful blessings that are mentioned of that time here's one in revelation 21 it says that god shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying neither shall be there be any more pain for the former things are passed away and so that's the message of the bible these things are temporary they're going to pass away but god in his love and his mercy has determined the future which is almost beyond our imagination, but we only have access to it through his holy word. And so my parting message to you, um, at least in this part of the talk, is if you have not yet really looked into the gospel message, that now's the time to do so, to try and understand it, to try and appreciate it. And the Christadelphians, we'd love to share our understanding of that with you, because as we said at the start, it is the power of God unto salvation. Having a correct understanding and faith is crucial to being saved maybe you have looked at it maybe you you do understand it but you've never quite embraced it well maybe now's the time maybe this is the wake-up call maybe god is working in your life through this coronavirus maybe he's working in mine so that we rededicate ourselves to him and his ways and maybe as well god is working in the kingdoms of men to bring around his kingdom on this earth which we know will come soon so thank you very much for your time i hope you've found it interesting it's been a tricky subject to deal with and i've done my best to do so but i, I look forward to any questions that that anyone has and uh, i want to thank you for tuning in this evening thank you